The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's uh, have a open with a word of prayer and have a few moments of silent prayer in case you need to use 1 John 1 9 then I will open in prayer let's pray Father, we're so grateful we have this time that we can come together, that we can learn from your word, that we can have our souls refreshed by the eternal truths that are in your word, that we can uh, look back throughout the ages and see that you are always the same and that you consistently work in us despite our unfaithfulness and our failures, that you are consistent in your work in us to teach us about your faithfulness and that you are always able to take care of all of our needs, all of our problems, every situation in life. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, that we can focus and concentrate during this next hour, and that as we study these things, we will gain, as Jacob did, a great, a fresh perspective as we see you face to face in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 32. Genesis 32, one of my favorite chapters and favorite stories in the Old Testament as Jacob is returning to the land and wrestles with the angel of the Lord in an extremely uh, enigmatic and intriguing episode in Genesis chapter 32 as he is re-entering the land that God promised to Abraham as well as to his father Jacob. As we look at this episode of Scripture, this chapter revolves really around two elements that are going on inside this chapter that uh, provide, the, I guess, the uh, center for the doctrinal teaching that is in this section. The first has to do with Jacob's prayer, which is covered in verses 9 through 12. It's in this prayer that uh, he recognizes in a perhaps a more profound way than he has before his the fact that God is the one who is his protector and the one who provides for him. And that provides sort of center for those first 21 verses. And then the second area of this, of this uh, chapter is the wrestling match that Jacob has with God in verses 24 to 32. Now, we're not told immediately that this is God. It's just a man, and, and so it's rather enigmatic. Who is this man? Why is he wrestling with Jacob? Is this man God? And, and if he's God, why is he attacking Jacob? And why are they involved in this wrestling match? 
And if they are wrestling, why does it take? Uh, why can't? Um, why doesn't God defeat uh, Jacob with a good uh, uh, good throw somewhere during the night? Why does it go on so long? And why does God have to resort to this? Uh, event at the end where he strikes Jacob on the hip and cripples him and just what's going on here. So there's a number of, of rather interesting things that happen in this chapter, things that we're not really sure about because the Scripture really doesn't give us uh, answers to some of the questions that do come up. But this it's this wrestling match with God that comes up at the end of this chapter that is really a climax to what we've been uh, studying in Jacob's spiritual life, starting with the episodes where he's a young man and you really see his character living up to his name, Jacob, that he's the heel grabber, the conniver, the manipulator. He's the one who's always trying to get what he's been promised in terms of the blessing of God and, and the birthright. And he he uh, outwits his brother Esau on a couple of, of occasions. And then we see the saw all of the episodes between Jacob and Laban while he's out of the land as one tries to out-connive the other. And then it's finally here that all of this sort of comes to a head. So it's interesting to watch how God is working behind the scenes in all of these events to to uh, pull things together. In the previous lessons that we studied back in chapter 31, we focused on the principle that God is working in the in the life of Jacob as he does with each of us through a series of successive tests. James tells us that it's through the testing of our faith, that is the testing of doctrine in our soul, that God gives us those opportunities to apply the word that we learn in various situations. And as we apply the word, uh, the Holy Spirit uses the doctrine that's in our souls to strengthen us and to produce spiritual growth and maturity. And in the Old Testament, even though they did not have the Holy Spirit as the uh, primary dynamic and power source for the spiritual life, nevertheless, the dynamic of testing was still there and the opportunities to trust God. And as the Old Testament believer exercised the faith rest drill and trusted God, spiritual growth took place and So one of the areas with Jacob was clearly in this arena of people testing. And we saw the the testing that he had with Laban all through those 20 years as Laban is out-conniving the conniver and out-manipulating the manipulator. And he's constantly getting the upper hand. But at the end, it's God who steps in and God's the one who blesses Jacob, demonstrating to Jacob that, look, it's not up to you. It's not your... Uh, you working in the power of your flesh, you need to rely on me. I'm the one who's going to provide for you, and I'm the one who will protect you. And just as I promised at Bethel when you were leaving the land, I promised that I would prosper you. But Jacob's like most of us. He doesn't learn the lesson the first time, second time, maybe even the third or fourth time. We have to kind of go through those tests over and over again and to learn that God really is the one that protects us provides for us. He's the source of our security and sustenance, and we have to learn to just relax and trust Him. And so this comes together for us in this in this particular chapter. Now, at the outset of the chapter, we have a little episode that takes place in the first two verses. Just a brief episode 
we could entitle this Two Camps and Two Messengers. Two Camps and Two Messengers. And it's very briefly described. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, one of the things that gets lost for us in reading our English text is the things that are going on in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text is filled with uh, paranomasias, uh, plays on words that are designed to bring out certain points uh, in, the, in the text. There are uh, various words that are used in this text that are the same words that are used back in Genesis chapter 28 as Jacob was leaving the land. So the writer of Scripture uses uh, words that sound alike in order to bring out certain points. He uses uh, uh, a transposition of letters in order to bring out certain points and keep words that sound uh, in a similar way. And then um, he uses the same key words that are used, uh, for example, in chapter 28, in order to bring out uh, that this parallel that just as when Jacob is leaving the land and he has nothing, and he's leaving because he's uh, running away from his brother's threats to kill him because he has... Uh, gypped his brother out of uh, out of his birthright and out of his blessing, and Esau is ready to murder him, and he has to to leave as quickly as he can with nothing but the clothes on his back. And yet God appeared to him at Bethel on his way out, and there God promised him in Genesis 28:15 that God would provide for him and God would protect him and God would bless him while he's out of the land, and that God would bring him back to the land. And now as we come to the beginning here, God is bringing him uh, back into the land. There is another uh, play on words here. You have the word uh, malaach for uh, angel. This is the standard Hebrew word for angel. And it means, uh, it's translated angel every place in Genesis except for two places in this chapter. These are the this only two places in verses 3 through 6, that we have the word malaach referred to human messengers in the book of, of Genesis. So you have two different messengers. You have the uh, angelic divine messengers in verse 1, and then we have Jacob sending human messengers in verse 2. So these are uh, verse 3. These are the uh, two messengers. And then there are two camps that appear, and this is the uh, Hebrew word uh, Mahana Mahana or Mahanaim which is the plural and this is why Jacob calls the name of the place in verse 2 Mahanaim two camps now that also raises an interesting question Mahana means a camp or an army uh, can mean a company as it's translated a couple of times in this, in this chapter but uh, six times in this in this opening section, uh, the word machana or machanaim, some form of the word, is used. It's used in verse 2, again in verse 7, twice in verse 8, again in verse 10, and then in 21. And in the midst of this section, as he talks about camp, the two camps that he sees in verses 1 and 2, 
He establishes his camp and then he sends messengers on ahead and then he sends a gift to Esau. And the word for gift is a word that's usually translated offering. It is a play on a play uh, a play on word uh, on the word machana, and it's uh, mincha. And so you hear this difference, and it brings out uh, this contrast in the text for emphasis. We'd use boldface type or italics or something like that to draw these these emphasis, but it draws your attention to what's the, to the transition of events going on inside the passage. So mincha, we'll get to in a minute when we get there. Well, the focus of this first section is really on God's faithful provision and protection for Jacob during the time that he's been out of the land and bringing him back to the land. It it emphasizes the principle for us that God faithfully provides for the believer down through the ages. He protects the believer in spite of our stubborn attempts to provide safety and security on our own terms and to somehow try to gain God's blessing through our own efforts and our own manipulation. So we trust God, but thankfully I've got twenty or $30,000 in the bank, so I don't have to trust Him too much. Uh, and that's really what we see going on with Jacob. And God is finally going to bring this whole issue uh to a head, he knows exactly what the trends of Jacob's sin nature are. That he wants to, he's he, today we would call him a control freak and a master manipulator, and he's always trying to work the deal to make sure he comes out ahead. And God is going to finally deal with that uh, in this particular section. Now, as this section begins with this, uh, he has a a vision that takes place in chapter 1, I mean verse 1, where it seems like God sort of opens up his vision so that he sees not only what's going on in in the physical world, the physical realm, the natural realm, but he also sees something that's beyond that. It reminds me of when uh, Elisha is on the mountain and, and his servant is saying, well, we're surrounded by the armies of the Syrians, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, uh, Lord, open his eyes. And he opens his eyes and he sees that the hills are just covered with the armies, the hosts of God, the armies of the angels. That word in the Hebrew, Sabaoth, that is used in um, the hymn, A Mighty Fortresses Are God, is the Hebrew word for, for armies, literally. It's the more antiquated term is hosts. I remember a few years ago when uh, Dan Ingram was taking first-year Hebrew, and he had to translate a passage. And like a good Marine, he translated it, the armies of God. And his Hebrew professor graded him down for that and said, no, you should, it's host. And I looked up the word host in any English dictionary, and it, one of the meanings for the word host is army. And they'll tell you it's an antiquated English word. And this is a problem we have with so many language instructors is they're buried in the King James somewhere. But that's what Jacob sees here. He, God opens his eyes to reveal to him that God is protecting him. He is surrounded by this military encampment, for that's what uh, Mahanaim often refers to, an army or an encampment of an army. And he is surrounded by this army of angels that are there to protect him. Now, why would he be so concerned about being protected? 
because the last time he was home in this land, uh, he was leaving as fast as he could because his brother Esau was breathing threats of murder. And he has no idea. It's been 20 years, but he hasn't heard anything from Esau. And Esau may still be uh, breathing threats of murder. So he is uh, fearful, extremely fearful, about the kind of reception he's going to have from Esau. So at the very beginning, we see this, this hint of what's going on in the passage, this foreshadowing that God is reminding Jacob that God and God alone is his protection and the one who is providing for him. And so Jacob saw them. And in vocabulary that is reminiscent of what happened in chapter 28, he names the place God's camp. Just as he said, this is uh, Bethel. When he named Bethel, he says, this is Mahanaim. He uses the same kind of vocabulary. That's not the only parallel here. Uh, this is the, the phrase we see in verse 1 that Jacob saw the angels of God. That phrase, angels of God, is used only two times in all of the Old Testament. It's used here in 32.1, and it's used in 28.12 when he was at Bethel. The writer wants you to draw the parallel between the two places. Furthermore, the Hebrew word that is translated uh, arriving or reaching in uh, 28.11, and that the angels of God met him, in 32.1 is the same Hebrew word pagah, and that is used in both places. Furthermore, when he names the place, he uses the Hebrew word zeh, this, and that's used four times, referring to this place in Genesis 28.16-17, to 17, and he, it is used uh, when he talks about this is the gate of heaven, where he had the vision of the stairway to heaven in, in uh, chapter 28. And he uses that same word here, this is God's camp in 32.2. So the use of identical vocabulary is designed so that we draw this connection that God, what is happening here is the fulfillment of the promise that God was making to Jacob back in chapter, uh, chapter 28. So there's all of these parallels uh, going on. But what we see here is that he has two camps. He calls it Mahanaim, which is a dual ending in the Hebrew indicating two, two camps. And scholars debate the identification of the two camps. Are we talking about uh, the camp of, of uh, Laban and Esau, his two enemies? Laban, he's just left Laban's camp, and Laban is broken camp, we're told, at the end of chapter uh, 31 and verse 55, and He's departed and returned to his place, and now he has to face the camp of Esau. Or is this talking about the camps of the two brothers, Jacob versus Esau? Are we talking about uh, uh, Jacob and Laban, where this is a reference back to Laban's camp in chapter 31? Uh, or are we talking about the fact that, that Jacob's strategy in approaching uh, his brother Esau is to divide his group into two camps? Or, and I believe this is what the text is indicating, that it's talking about these two camps, the encampment of the angels, as I said earlier, and his own physical encampment. So he, he sees the angels encamped. He sees his own encampment. He knows God is reminding him 
that God is a source of his protection. Now we come to verse 3 and his strategy for approaching Esau. And we see as we studied in decision making that he exercises wisdom in the way he approaches uh, his brother. He knows that he uh, maltreated his brother, that he deceived him, he manipulated him. And so now he is going to approach him in a very uh, tactful manner. And so he is going to send messengers. This is that same word that's used for angels. It's the word malaach, uh, but this time for human messengers. And we're told Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, let's see if I have a map here. So we always have to have a good map so you can orient yourself. Up in the upper right corner, you see the location of Haran in the area region of Padanaram, where Jacob has been living for the last 20 years. This green line indicates his route or his path down to back to the promised land and he has come down the eastern side of the Jordan into the hill country of Gilead and now he is headed towards the uh, Jordan to cross over into the land itself. Here's another map that focuses on a little more and here we have the location of uh, the, the hills of Gilead laid out here. Here is the location of Penuel or Peniel and uh, Mahanaim on the banks of the Jabbok River, which runs roughly along this green line here. You can't uh, make out the river because it's, it's underneath that path. So this is the location. Now Seir is down here into the uh, southeast of the Dead Sea. This is the area where uh, Esau is located, the area of, of Edom down in this area here. Here's Mount Seir, just to off, almost off the map down in the uh, lower edge there. So Esau is probably not down here, but he has to uh, come up and move north, and he comes with a, a, an army of 400. We haven't hit that yet, but that's going to really put the fear into, into Jacob. So back in verse 3, he sends messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, and he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. So he's going to uh, entreat his brother and find out before he goes very far whether or not he's going to get a hostile reception. So he has a, exercises a wise and tactful approach to his brother. Notice there's no deception here. He's not being manipulative, but neither is he uh, sending gifts at this point. He's not re- ready to... He, he is not going to return the blessing that he took from his brother, but he's not trying to deceive his brother uh, either. Verse 6, we come upon the basic problem for Jacob, and that is that he gets a report from the messengers as they come back. They say, we came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And there in the Hebrew, it uses a participle to indicate the, the vividness of the action. He's on his way here. We ran into him, and he's already headed this way, and he's on his way. And so Jacob responds 
uh, out of his sin nature in verse 7. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And the Hebrew uses two key words here to emphasize what's going on. Yareh indicating his fear and Sarar indicating his distress. He is he, he's not to the point of pushing the panic button and being, being uh, just emotional or freezing up, but he is scared to death because they report that, that he's coming with 400 men, and this is a lot more than he has with him. He has his kids and he has his servants, but he's no match for 400 men. Now, it's not unusual for a wealthy uh, rancher or farmer, we would call them at this time, to have... Uh, workers that would number in uh, in the numbers of three or four hundred. Abraham had three hundred eighteen servants. Remember that he took with him uh, against the uh, four kings that in, invaded from the east. And later on, David has somewhere between four and six hundred uh, men with him in the hill country of Judea. So it's this isn't an unusual thing for. Uh, someone to have a troop of this size to deal with bandits and to deal with uh, other invaders that would be coming into the into the territory, but it does strike fear into the heart of Jacob. And notice his response: as soon as he gets fearful, what does he do? He turns to the Lord. This is the first time we've really seen Jacob submit himself in dependence. To God, And it's important to note this prayer. This is the center of this first part here. He is submitting himself to God in prayer. This uh, prayer in, in verses 9 through 12 is a prayer that is uh, very similar to later lament psalms. And the psalms where the psalmist presents his petition, his concern to God, calling upon God to uh, deliver him. In verse 9, we read the address in the prayer. He addresses it to God, and he addresses God specifically as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. There, the reason he does this is he is recalling to mind the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Abraham and that was uh, reestablished with his father Isaac. And he is emphasizing a point here that, that God that he is praying to, he is reminding him, of those covenants. So he calls upon God and addresses him as the God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac. And then he goes on to say, uh, This is, he says, You are the God of my father Isaac, the Lord, who said to me, and now he reminds God of his promise. This is the faith rest drill, where we go to promises in the scripture. And we remind God of what he has said to us. We call that claiming a promise. Where we are simply going to God and saying, God, you said this to me, and now I am trusting you to fulfill that promise. I'm calling upon you to uh, act on my behalf in light of what you have promised me in your word. So he is taking this uh, concept of the covenant that God has promised to Abraham, that this land would be his and that the seed would come through through him, and he is also reminding God of the promise that he made in the early part of Genesis chapter 31, where God told him in verse, uh, in verse, uh, was it verse 8 or verse 3, and in verse uh, 13, God told him to return to the land. God reminded him of the promise at 
uh, Bethel and told him to return to the land. So Jacob is reminding God of his specific promise. It's a great example to use of the faith rest drill. The next thing that happens is that having reminded God of his promise and his and what God has told him to do to return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you, he's saying, well, Lord, Esau is about to kill me. You better deal well with me. And then we have his confession. This is the first time we really see uh, Jacob humble himself under the mighty hand of God and he admits his sin and his weakness. He says to the Lord in verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. So the first thing he recognizes is that he's not worthy of anything. He, he, he has failed God. In light of all that God has done for him, the word translated mercies is better translated your faithful, loyal love. It is the Hebrew word chesed, which has to do with covenant love. They, uh, it's frequently translated loving kindness. But it has to do with God's loyalty to his covenant. So he says, I'm not worthy of the fact that you've remained loyal to your covenant throughout all of this time, these 20 years, in light of all the ways I've been, still been trying to solve my problems on my own and manipulate the situation with Laban and everything else. And he says, and of all the truth. And that word is the Hebrew word emet. The Hebrew word emet, which indicates here, should be translated faithfulness. Should be not truth. He's not talking about that. This is the the root concept of faithfulness or stability. And the root meaning of the word uh, emmet was used in one passage in 2 Kings. It escapes me right now where it talks about, Hezekiah is talking about the pillars uh, or the foundation stone of the pillars, the doorposts in the temple. And it's that foundation stone that the pillars of the of the doorposts in the temple were set. It's what gave that stability. It was the foundation for those massive doorposts. And that's the idea of, of this word group Emmet. In some passages it means faithful. In other passages, uh, different forms of the word indicate truth. But they both go back to this idea of stability and certainty. So he is emphasizing that with these two words, Chesed and Emmet, that God is loyal and faithful and whenever we see that emphasized in a human situation, especially with somebody like Jacob, what we're hearing in the background is that Jacob has not been loyal or faithful. But he recognizes that he left the land, the promised land, with nothing but his staff, and now he has two companies. There's that word Mahanaim again. It's bringing this back two camps. He's got two armies with him, two, two large groups of people with him and all of his flocks and herds and all of his uh, family and all of his servants. All of this is due to the grace of God and the provision of God, which was what he had promised in Genesis chapter 28 as he was leaving the land. So we have a, a focus on the character of God. And whenever you face a problem in life, the place to start is with the character of God. Just stop and start focusing on 
who God is, his sovereignty, his uh, love, his loyal love, his faithfulness, his immutability, his omnipotence. And the more we expand and enlarge our understanding of who God is, and then we compare that to the problem that we're facing, suddenly your problem doesn't seem to be so large anymore. And that's a pretty much a standard procedure that you see in the Psalms again and again. So he focuses on the character of God. He admits his own uh, failures. And then in the uh, next verse, and he emphasizes, or he calls upon God to deliver him. In verse 11 he says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother. This is his petition. This is his cry for deliverance. This is the Hebrew word natsal, which means to deliver, to rescue, to save. It's often used... To, to indicate deliverance of someone that's in harm's way. And it is a common word that is used in the petitions of the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 31:16, the psalmist says, Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me. That's not Saul. Save me. Deliver me for your mercy's sake. Then Psalm 59:1. This is addressed to the chief musician. It's a mixed time of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So David's life was being threatened. And he cries out in that first verse, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me is that same Hebrew word, Natsal. And another, one more example, Psalm 143.9. The psalmist cries out, Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. So, What Jacob is doing here is the same kind of thing that we hear the psalmist do, that when when we get surrounded by our problems, our difficulties, our heartaches, then it is God and God alone who can deliver us and rescue us in time of trouble. And that is indicated in numerous passages. And then he gives the rationale in verse 12. This is the claim of the promise. He says, for you said, I will surely treat you. See, he goes back. He says, God, you made a promise to me back at Bethel. And at Bethel, you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Lord, this can't happen if Esau comes in and wipes us out and there's a massacre. So I'm calling upon you in light of your promise to stand as my advocate. Now, this is great as far as it goes. It's a great prayer. It indicates that at that moment in time, Jacob is, is submitted to God. He recognizes that he has to be under God's authority and God's protection. God's the only source of that protection. He's not being two-faced. He's not being manipulative. He understands that he has to throw himself completely and totally on the mercy of God. And, and we're the same way. We reach these points many times in our life and we just call upon God to deliver us and to provide for us. And then ten minutes later, we're doing just exactly what Jacob does ten minutes later. Later that night, verse 13, so he lodged there that same night. So we've had a, a, a daytime event and now we're into the nighttime. And he lodges there that same night took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. Ah, we prayed to God, and God's going to deliver us, but maybe I'm going to help out just a little bit. Sound familiar? 
So maybe if I send a little bribe to Esau, we'll soften things. So I'm going to turn to God, but instead of just leaving it in God's hands, I'm going to try to uh, help the situation out just a little bit. So he comes up with his plan to send a present, a mincha, to his, uh, to his brother Esau. And so he puts together a, a bribe uh, consisting of uh, uh, several groups of animals. He's going to send goats, sheep, camels, cattle, and donkeys. A total of 550 animals in all. He's got 220 uh, goats. He's going to take 200 female goats and 20 male goats. So he's going to send a tribe or even a trip of goats to his brother Esau. Then he takes the same number of sheep, 200 female sheep and and, uh, 200 ewes and 20 rams, a flock of sheep. See, this is a great starter for new uh, flocks and herds for Esau. Then he's going to send a send 30 camels with their young. So there were more than just 30 camels. Uh, and this is a flock of camels. And then he sends 50, 50 cattle. He sends uh, 40 cows and 10 bulls. So he sends a herd or a kind of cattle to Esau. And then he collects some donkeys, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. So he sends a drove of donkeys. So we have a, a trip of goats and a flock of sheep, flock of camels, a kind of cattle, a drove of donkeys, all to start new herds for his brother Esau. It's a nice bribe. It's worth a lot. And, and he decides that instead of sending it all at once, let's sort of overwhelm him with a kindness. So we'll divide it up into into different segments. So we'll just send a few at a time, and each time uh, one group gets to him, then uh, Esau will say, well, where is this coming from? And he instructs his servants. Notice how controlling he is. He's going to make sure everybody says the right thing at the right time. He's still the master manipulator. He says... uh, Put some distance between the successive droves. And when, verse 17, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, uh, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? Who are these in front of you? Then this is what you say. They are your servant Jacob's. Notice the humility there. It's your servant Jacob and, and my Lord Esau. It's your servant Jacob and my Lord Esau. He's uh, kissing up to Esau here. He says, and you shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. It's a present, a mincha, sent to my lord Esau. Behold, he's also behind us. And he commanded them the second group and the third group and all who followed the groves. And so the droves. And so as as Esau is approaching, every hour or two, he's being surrounded by another group of animals and more servants. And, and before long, he's being slowed down because he's picking up more and more of an, animals and and uh, the servants from Jacob, and he's being overwhelmed with the kindness of Jacob. And Jacob is thinking, hmm, maybe we can just solve this whole problem doing it my way. And the thing is, he missed out on learning how God was going to solve the problem without Jacob's manipulation or Jacob's uh, uh, cunning manipulation of the situation. So he commanded... Um, 
So as they gather together, finally, uh, he sends them all and he lodges that night in the camp, verse 21. And he arose that night, we're told in verse 22, as we enter into the second and important section of this passage. He arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of the Jabbok. Now what we come into at this point is a play on words that you'll miss out on in the English. We have, first of all, the name Jacob, Yaakov, Jacob, the man. Then you have the name of the river, Jabbok. And if you notice, the difference between the two in terms of the sound is just the reversal of the B and the Q. So Jacob and Jabbok. And then you have this wrestling match with the, uh, this man that mysteriously shows up. And the verb for wrestling is Yaabek. And so this, these words appear several times, Jacob, Jabbok, and wrestling. And all this is designed to draw our attention to the name of Jacob because what happens at the end is Jacob is going to get a new name. And so the the writer is emphasizing Jacob's name for a reason. Now, Jacob's name meant a heel grabber. It said something about his character, the strengths of his sin nature, that in the flesh, Jacob is the manipulator, the one who is always cunning and crafting new schemes to get what he wants. And here we're going to see this climax as as God finally uh, brings this to a head. Well, let's just go through what happens. He, he's focused on his family. As a good leader, he's protecting his family. He's going to make sure that, that they're behind all these animals and servants that go out first. So if there's any trouble, that they will be protected and they will be taken care of. So he sends them over the brook, sends over the rest of what's left, and he's left alone. And as he before he can cross over the river, we're told that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, just a little aside here before we go any further and before I forget it, I don't have a slide on this, but when this was translated into the Greek, the Greek word for wrestling, the Greek verb for wrestling is palaio, P-A-L-A-I-O. And before the emperor Hadrian uh, shut down Jerusalem and renamed Jerusalem and renamed Israel Palestine long before the end of the first century and the destruction of Israel. The Greeks, because the Greeks loved a good pun, the Greeks called the land of Israel Palestine, based on not because it's not a play on Philistine at all, which is what a lot of people think and what you may have heard before. But the Greeks called it Palestine, and the etymological derivative goes back to this word for wrestler. Because Palestine sounded like the Philistines, but it was based on the Greek verb for wrestler. It was the land of the wrestler, the land of of, uh, Jacob the wrestler, who was renamed Israel. So that's where that name comes from. It doesn't have anything to do with a bunch of misplaced migrant workers that got resettled in in a land that God had promised to Israel and are now causing trouble. It has to do with uh, the original 
head of the race or head of the nation, Jacob, and his name, his new name, Israel, is given as a name of this people. So this man appears to him. Now we're left with this mystery. Who's this man? And why is he called a man? Well, when does this take place? Notice in verse 22, it's that night. It's dark. It's not like the darkness in Houston at night. Darkness in Houston at night isn't very dark. You can see things. But if you've ever been out in the country somewhere, out in the wilderness, up in the mountains, out in the, uh, on a ranch in the hill country somewhere where there are no city lights anywhere, then you sometimes have a night, especially if it's a moonless night, when you can barely see your hand in front of your face. And this is that kind of a night. It's dark. Jacob doesn't know who's there. All he knows is there is what appears to be a man in opposition to him, and he's under attack. He's under assault. And this takes place uh, probably later at night, I would say somewhere about midnight or early in the morning, because this wrestling match is going to go on for some time. Now, Jacob is strong. What's he been doing for the last 20 years? Well, he's been out there working with the flocks and the herds. And before that, we know he was strong because when he first showed up at, at, uh, um, in Padan Aram, he uh, single-handedly picked up the large stone that covered the well. So we know that he was a man that was physically uh, strong, physically capable. He had been working outdoors for years, so he had the strength and the stamina uh, to wrestle. And so... We're told in a very brief account in verse 24 that this man showed up and wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So for three or four or five hours, there's this wrestling match. Now, we don't know who he is yet. But if you read to the end of the story, we know that it's God. Now, why is God wrestling with Jacob? And if he's wrestling with him, why doesn't God just take him out at the very beginning, just... just uh, uh, win the match. Why does God let Jacob seem to win or come close to him? Why does he keep going? I think the reason is that this whole episode here is a picture of what's been going on. It's a physical, a, a real physical picture of what was going on spiritually for the last 30 or 40 years or more in Jacob's life as he was struggling or wrestling with God and God's place in his life. And all this time, Jacob has been trying to manipulate the blessing. He was trying to outfox Esau and to cheat him and to jip him out of his blessing and out of his birthright. Then he goes to Laban. He's constantly trying to manipulate the situation to get what God had already promised and prophesied in that original announcement when the two twins are struggling in uh, Rebekah's womb and God said that the younger or the older will serve the younger and that these represent two nations. He already knows that, but he's been busy trying to get, uh, manipulate God to get, give him what was already his uh, to begin with. And so God in grace does the same thing with us. We're always wrestling with God in our lives. And God just doesn't bash us over the head with a two-by-four. That's what you have to do to get, some, get our attention sometimes. But, that's, but God doesn't just win the match right away. There's grace in the process as he gives us that time to learn and to grow. 
before God finally drives the point home that he needs to be the one who is in complete charge of our life and our thinking and he needs to be the only and ultimate reference point for everything that is in our in our life and this is that point in Jacob's life we've watched that he has seen he's gone through these stages of spiritual advance and it is here that everything is going to change and we know that because at the end of this episode God gives him a new name Israel which means he who wrestles with God and he has prevailed against God but in his prevailing against God what happens? God wins see there's this ironic twist that takes place in this episode God at the very end just touches it's not a word it can mean to strike or to smite or to hit but it can also mean just to lightly touch it's not a word that tells us what the power of the touch was and since it's God it doesn't have to be anything powerful he can just touch that hip joint and displace it and and Jacob is going to be crippled for the rest of his life as a constant reminder of who is ultimately in charge of his life but what God is showing Jacob is that Jacob has to be in complete submission to God's authority in his life before God is going to do what? Give him the blessing. God has not given him the blessing yet. Jacob's outfoxed Esau. He's uh, deceived his father Isaac, but God has not made the point of giving the blessing to Isaac. And it's at this point that Isaac, I mean Jacob in his wrestling with God pleads with God to give him the blessing. And it's at this point, this is a crucial turning point in in Jacob's life because it's at this point that he recognizes that he must be in complete and total dependence upon God. And we never again see in the life of Jacob that old, cunning manipulator that we've seen up to this point. This is a transforming event and time in Jacob's life. This is when he moves into a new level of spiritual maturity and dependence upon God. And so this whole wrestling match is designed to be a a, a picture, a training aid, as it were, for Jacob and for us of the reality that we too have to come to this point where just as Jacob meets God face to face and recognizes that he must make God the ultimate authority in his life, we have to come to that same point as well. Now they wrestle until the breaking of day. And in verse 25 we read, Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, that is, that, uh, that is the, the Lord, the man that is, that is wrestling with him, saw that he did not prevail against him, he touches the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hips out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go for the day breaks. And it's at this point that uh, with the light coming on, there's a revelation and realization on Jacob's part of who he's actually wrestling, wrestling with, that he's wrestling with God. And he says, no, I won't let you go until you bless me. And at this point, God says to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. God is emphasizing, God knows his name. But he's bringing out this point that his name is Jacob, the conniver, the manipulator. That's his character because in the ancient world, Names reflected something about the person's character, who they were. So he's he's Jacob, and in verse 28 he says, God says to him, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, 
but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men. And that's what the name means from the Hebrew verb sarah, meaning to struggle, to wrestle. He struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. So he has reached a point in his spiritual life where he realizes that God must be the one in control, and he must be uh, submitted to God as the only source of blessing. Then verse 29, Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he, that is God, said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. This is the first time we have this stated that God blesses Jacob. So Jacob then called the name of the place Peniel, which means God face to face. That E-L ending is the word is the suffix for God and P-E-N is the uh, Hebrew for face so Peniel means this is the place where I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved and then he crossed over Penuel this is another form of the, of the name the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. So this verse, which is an odd little verse to put in there, it's not part of the Mosaic Law, nowhere is it stated. It was just an explanation that because of this event that had happened, they didn't eat that uh, hip muscle, that thigh muscle that was attached to the, to the hip socket. So with this we see uh, that... Jacob realizes that God is his strength, his protection, his source of security, and he is now able to relax and to meet Esau without relying upon his own uh, schemes and manipulation. So he sends out in verse 33, or chapter 33, we'll see how he uh, divides up his his, uh, family to meet Esau, and then he arrives in Canaan. I have two or three more chapters to go in the Jacob episode, and then we will uh, move on to the next stage, which is Joseph. So this is where we see a major turning point in the life of Jacob as he becomes Israel, and then that name, Israel, becomes significant. When you, Later on, throughout the prophets, as we read about them, it's interesting to see how when Israel is, uh, when the nation is being obedient to God, Frequently the term Israel is emphasized, but when they are out of fellowship and rebellion, they will be called Jacob. For example, the period of the tribulation, which is a judgment on the nation, is not known as the time of of Israel's wrath, but the time of Jacob's wrath, because for much of that time they are disobedient. So there's a further play on words. It's not true every time you see those words. But in many cases, that's what's being brought out is the name Israel is used when they're being obedient to God and Jacob when they're disobedient. I don't confuse that with the northern kingdom and southern kingdom later on because Israel becomes the proper name for the northern kingdom. But in some passages, you see this uh, play on words, this nuance going back and forth. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, your provision, the way you graciously work in our lives to bring us along toward spiritual maturity. We are reminded, like Jacob, that there are many ways in which we fail, but you are always faithful and you are 
uh, you are never go back on your word. Father, we pray that as we face the fears, anxieties, and uh, threats in our life, that we will be mindful of your promises to us and that we can rely upon those, tr- those promises, trust you, and relax in your provision. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.